Father in heaven, thank you so much for the opportunity of knowing your love. Thank you so much that you long to pour out your Holy Spirit in latter rain power. And Father, I pray that just now that you would reveal to us how we can be filled with your Spirit. Teach us by your Spirit to live in your Spirit, to minister through the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I have visited China on a number of occasions, and not long ago I visited Shenyang, China. Shenyang is north of North Korea. When my wife and I visited Shenyang, it was 23 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Now, if you think it's cold this morning in Lexington at 18 degrees, imagine 40 degrees colder. It was really, really cold. The church is growing rapidly in China. We have between 400 and probably 450,000 members in China. The church grows rapidly. We visited the largest Seventh-day Adventist church in the world. It's in Shenyang. It's a church of over 6,000 members. We have our own church building with with our own Seventh-day Adventist logo on that building. It's openly identified as a Seventh-day Adventist church. The church started about 20 years ago. And I'll give you a background of how that church started. The church started when a woman was sick and she was so sick that the doctors couldn't do much for her, but she had a Seventh-day Adventist neighbor and the Adventist neighbor believed the Seventh-day Adventist health message. And she began nursing that woman, helping her on a better diet. She began giving that woman hydrotherapy treatments. And this woman had a daughter who was a teenager, 17 years old. And as the Adventist ministered to this woman, and as she ministered to the family, both the woman and the daughter accepted the Adventist message. There was no Adventist church in their their town. So the woman who improved in her health because of the Adventist health message, and her daughter and the Adventist woman began meeting in their home. They began praying for the ministry and outpouring of the Holy Spirit on their lives. They began sharing Jesus with others. And this little group of three or four 20 years ago grew to six and eight, and it grew to 30, and it grew to 40, and they began to rent a little place. Today, they have 6,000 members, 500 groups, And they call them small groups, and some of them are meeting in churches of three to four hundred. When we met there, we sat with this woman in the church. Now, I was in, I wanted to preach, but I was restricted in preaching. I had sent my sermon to the appropriate officials because this was an official visit. I was representing the General Conference. I was meeting with government officials and uh, meeting with religious officials. So I can't walk in incognito to speak. It was a very high-profile visit. And when the Chinese government read my sermon, it was a simple sermon on Jesus and the outpouring of the Spirit and so forth, um, 
they said, we ha you haven't given us enough time to organize an official visit, and since you're coming officially, you will not be able to speak. So, but they said, you can give greetings. <laughs> I gave greetings. <laughs> and I asked how long the greeting should be, and the pastor told me a greeting should be about an hour. <laughs> I did not preach, but I gave greetings. I stood and gave greetings from John when he wrote on the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos. And I get up and said, today I will not preach to you, but I want to give you greetings from an old man who wrote a book called Revelation. And I want to tell you what he would tell you if he was here. He would tell you that the gospel is going to the world. He would tell you that it's going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. He would tell you about your brothers and sisters in Brazil. Then I gave them greetings from Brazil and told them all the stories about what was going on there in the church because this church is isolated. I told them about the Philippines. I told them about Africa. I gave them greetings from John. I gave them greetings from Adventists about every country in the world. <laughs> Talked about an hour. At the end of my sermon, the pastor got up and made an appeal. The pastor said, you've heard what Pastor Finley has said. And as the appeal was made, three to four hundred people came forward in the church that Sabbath on a specific call for baptism. I said to her, what is your criteria for baptism? She said they have to attend church a year. If they miss, it has to be for a special reason because we want to protect the purity of our church. Very fascinating. I said, well, that's not found in the Bible. She said, I know, but there are people that would like to join the church that are not quite Adventists. She said, we teach them all the doctrines of the Adventist church. She said, these people become genuine Adventists when they're baptized. Um, she had 400 people that had been attending church all year that came forward in that call. I said, what is the power? Now, incidentally, the pastor of that church happens to be a woman. She is a powerful, powerful preacher. Um, many of our pastors in China are women. The reason for that is that many of our men in China have been imprisoned for their faith. The same thing happened in the Ukraine many years ago. We had 39 pastors under communism and 37 were in prison. And many of our ladies stepped forward and preached, and preached powerfully for Jesus. Um, I talked to the pastor of this church, and I asked her this question. I said, why is it that you have 6,000 members and 500 groups and your church is exploding in growth? She said, Pastor, every morning at 4.30, we meet at the church. I said, every morning? She said, no, Pastor, that's a little exaggeration. We don't meet at 4.30 every morning because on Sabbath we meet at 6 o'clock because we're going to stay all day. She said, but six days a week we meet between 4.30 and 5 at the church and we pray for the Holy Spirit from 5 to 6, 6.30. We said, why do you meet at 4.35 and pray for the Holy Spirit then? Why don't you come at 8, 9, or 10? She said, Pastor, our people work. Our students are busy. She said, we very, live very active lives, so we all meet at the church. We come every day. I said, how many people? She said, every day there'll be different people, but we'll have 80, 100, 150 people every morning praying at this church for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're praying for the moving of the Spirit of God. What if every Sabbath morning, 30, 40, 50 Adventists came to your church and prayed for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? 
what if there was a meeting on Tuesday or Wednesday night praying for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? We want to look this morning at the outpouring of the Spirit for the finishing of God's work. If you have your Bible, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. You know this chapter well. Jesus is outlining coming events. He outlines wars and rumors of wars. Jesus talks about famines and earthquakes and pestilences. Jesus talks about rising crime and violence. He talks about the days of Noah and increasing immorality. Then Jesus says, after he talks about those signs in the natural world, the political world, those signs in the social world and the spiritual world, Jesus says, these things will always be with you. You can never determine the nearness of the coming of Christ by how many earthquakes we've had. You can never determine the coming of Christ solely and alone by the number of wars. Why? Because what if, what if you had 60 earthquakes last year and what if you have 120 this year? They double. But how do you know you're not going to have 240 next year? What if crime rises 38% this year? How do you know it's not going to rise 52% next year? What if one in every four families are divorced this year, one of every two? How do you know it's not going to be 66% next year? So you see the problem. If the only measuring stick you have for the coming of Jesus is rising crime, rising violence, earthquakes, famines, fires, floods. If that's the only measuring stick you have, you never have a barometer to know when the coming of Jesus is near because you don't know how much that's going to increase. Correct? Now, does Jesus give those as signs and can we preach them as Adventist evangelists and preachers as signs? Certainly. They are signs his coming is near, but they're not signs his coming is here. They're signs his coming is near, but they're not signs he's going to come in five years, eight years, ten years. We don't know based on those signs. But Jesus says, here is a final sign. And I will give you a sign that when you see this sign, it's the final sign. You will know based on that sign that my coming is imminent. We look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then, when? Then. When? Then. And then the end may come. Then the, then the end will be 100 years away. Then it's possible for the end. What does it say? Then the end what? Will come. So when will the end come? When the gospel of the kingdom is preached to all the world. So when we see the gospel in a powerful fashion, going around the world via internet, via satellite technology, via radio and television, when we see a communication network set up for the spreading of the gospel, when we see God's church getting on fire and passionate about sharing the gospel and touching their friends and neighbors with the gospel, we know that we're on the verge of the kingdom of God. So Jesus says the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world. What hinders the preaching of the gospel to all the world? If the proclamation of the gospel to the world is the final sign, yes, we'll have earthquakes, famines, fires, floods, wars, but the final sign is the preaching of the gospel. If that's the final sign, what will lead us to preach the gospel to the world? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
Have you ever heard somebody say, let's go out and finish the work? We got to finish the work. Wrong thought. Wrong thought. Not biblical. It is not biblical that we have to finish the work. Romans 9, verse 28. Romans 9, verse 28. Not biblical that we finish the work. Romans, the ninth chapter, 28th verse. Romans 9, verse 28. For we must finish the work. Is that what it says in Romans 9, 28? What does it say? Is there a difference between we and he? Is there a huge difference between we and he? Is there a gigantic difference between we and he? For he will do what? Finish the work. Because the Lord will make a what? Short work on the earth. So we do not finish the work. We cooperate with God in finishing his work. Now there's a big difference between the two and I need to explain that difference. If the emphasis is on we finishing the work, the emphasis is on our methods, and our methods have not finished the work for the last 150 years, they're not going to finish the work for the next 150. If the emphasis is on our genius in finishing the work, our genius hasn't done it up to now and it's not going to do it in the future. If the emphasis is on the church finishing the work, it only produces discouragement and frustration. God never calls us one time in the Bible to finish the work. He calls us to cooperate with him as he finishes his work. Now, what difference does that make? It's huge. If you think your role is to finish the work, as each passing generation goes by and Jesus has not come, you become frustrated and discouraged. Because I've never accomplished. God calls this generation of youth to finish the work, but we haven't finished it, so there's another generation. God calls you to be faithful. And if you are faithful to God and committed to God, when God has a generation of young people, when God has a church that's faithful to him, he will pour out his spirit through them and finish his work. So the emphasis is not on what I do. The emphasis is not on what this generation of youth does. The emphasis is on faithfulness to God. And as we are faithful to God in the life that he calls us to live, faithful in the university that you go as a, secular, as a student on a secular campus, faithful to the hospital you work in as a nurse, faithful to God and witness in your environment, faithful to God as you witness to those other people that work on the computers with you, faithful to God in your family. God is calling us to faithfulness. And when we're faithful to him and have a passion to be committed to God and committed to his work, he will pour out his spirit through that church and the work of God on earth will be finished. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. You know it well, don't you? It is the prophet Zechariah's vision of the lamps and the oil that runs through those lamps. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. We do not finish the work he does. We cooperate with him. A friend of mine puts it this way. We can never finish the work without God, but God will never finish the work without us. 
we cooperate with him in the finishing of his work. We're looking for the book of looking at the book of uh, Zechariah. You're looking at chapter 4 and you're looking there at verse 6. So he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my what? Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Is God going to finish his work? There are times that I hear people say there are more people being born than warned. There are more people coming into the world than we're making an impact on. The church, the work of God on earth is never going to be finished. That's a human way of looking at a divine problem. The Holy Spirit can create in a short amount of time what the church has not been able to accomplish in decades and generations. I remember when communism fell. The night that communism fell, I was preaching in an evangelistic series in Budapest, Hungary. For many years, I negotiated with communist governments in an attempt for the Adventist church to be able to hold evangelistic meetings in those countries. And I was, it was October 1989, I was holding a meeting in Budapest, downtown in Budapest. And the communist governments began to fall like sandcastles beneath the waves. And uh, first it was East Germany, then it was uh, Hungary and Poland and Yugoslavia. The night I was preaching, over 100,000 people marched in the street for their freedom. Amen. Up until that time, and this just illustrates how in 24 hours, 48 hours, a whole country can change. During that period of time in Hungary when we were preaching, up until that time, you could not get near the universities if you were a Christian to certainly speak to the students. Within 24 hours, my phone began to ring from universities all over Hungary to go speak to the students on the Bible and Christianity. I was invited to a town called Shekesvara. Shekesvara is a fascinating town. It was the center of uh, communist ideology in Hungary. And when I was invited there, the president of the university invited me and he said, we want you to give a lecture on the existence of God based on astronomy. Now, I'm not much of an astronomer at all. But in my evangelism, I have a lecture on nature and on astronomy, on the evidence of design that God exists that I use from time to time. Because I had a passion to reach these secular young people who had never been exposed to the Bible or Christianity, I agreed to do the lecture. Amen. So, but the, uh, the college president, university president set me up and this is what he said. He said, you will speak for one hour on the existence of God from astronomy and nature. After that hour, the head astronomer of the university will speak for one hour on there is no God from science. Then you'll take questions from the students. Well, I may be a little naive, but I'm not that naive. I knew what was happening. They were giving the impression of openness, but they were setting me up. So I said to the president of the university, look, I'm more than happy to do that, but I'd like your scientist to go first since I'm your guest. <laughs> now, I may not know a lot about astronomy, but I know a lot about asking questions. And I would rather ask questions about his lecture than have him ask questions about mine. 
because I know. So the, the, the university president agreed. When I got to the university, the university president was red-faced and he said, I am so sorry, Dr. Finley. He said, our astronomer had to be away today, so he's not here to lecture. Yeah. I said, that is no problem at all. Just give me his hour too. <laughs> so he agreed. And so I talked to the students about the evidence of design that there was a God. I pointed out from the whole concept of uh, biology and creation that evolution was contrary to divine scienti to, to scientific laws. I asked them, what's the fundamental law of biology? And it's life gives life, that living things produce living things. The first law you learn in biology is that living things produce living things. But evolution says that uh, if you wait long enough, non-living things will produce living things. But you don't have any evidence of that in the laboratory. So that is uh, non-living things are not producing living things. It takes life to produce life. And like produces like. So we talked about science and we talked about that. At the end of that lecture, and this illustrates how things change just so quickly, how the Holy Spirit can open up a whole nation. Uh, he can, and I've seen this in Russia uh, with uh, being on national television in Russia, debating uh, Russian philosophers on religious liberty. God just opens things up and God can do that for the world. When we were done with that lecture, a student raised his hand, and I knew this student was prompted by his atheistic professors, because I saw them smirking when he raised the question. And he said to me, do you believe in science? Yes. Do you believe that science is, uh, you have to verify? Yes. Um, then verify the fact that you've seen God, because if you haven't seen God, obviously God does not exist, because you can't test God in a hypothesis. So he was really pushing me. He said, you know, one of the Soviet cosmonauts ascend, went up in the spacecraft and uh, he's one of the Sputniks and uh, he never saw God. And so since you haven't seen God, he doesn't exist. So I said to them, you know, rather than argue about the existence of God or not, I just want to reason with you philosophically. And I just have some questions to ask you. And I'm going to start with your august learned professors at the university. I want to ask them a question or two. And, and uh, all I want to do is reason with you. Leave out the Bible, leave out God, leave out faith. But I just want to reason with you for a little while. And they agreed to do that. And I said, I respect your intellect. I respect your reason a great deal. So my first question is this. Of all the knowledge in the world, if you say this is the body of knowledge. Of all the knowledge in the world, how much knowledge do you have? Of all the knowledge of science, and of all the knowledge of language, let's say there's 2,500 languages in the world. Do you speak half the languages there are in the world? Do you speak 1,200 languages? Do you speak 800 languages? If you, do you, how many, of all the languages in the world, of all the on books on engineering, let's say for purpose of discussion there are 100,000 books on engineering. Have you read nine, have you read uh, 99,000 of the books on engineering? Of all the knowledge of computers, how much of that do you have? Do you know 100% of all there is to know about every computer in the world? Of all the knowledge of psychology in the human brain with 100 billion brain cells in the brain, how much do you know? Do you know everything there is to know about neurology and the human brain and physiology? If you look at all the knowledge, let's say Chinese culture, for example, I want you to name for me the sons of the emperor of the 15th Ming Dynasty and all their children right now. Of all the knowledge in the world, do you know 90% of all there is to know? 
faculty, do your students know 90% of all there is to know, of all the knowledge? Have they read 90% of all the books? No. I'm just talking about intellect. I'm not talking about God, faith at all. That's just leave that out. Do you know 70% of all there is to know? Do you know 50% of all there is to know? From an intellectual standpoint, how much do you know? Do you know 5% of all the knowledge in the universe? I'm gonna give you 5%. You probably don't know that much, but I'm gonna give you 5%. Let's say that you know 5% of all the knowledge in the universe. That means you don't know 95% of all the knowledge in the universe. Would you agree on that? Well, if you, by your own admission, agree that you only know 5% of all there is to know and you don't know 95% of all there is to know, my question is this. Could God exist in the 95% of the knowledge you don't have? <laughs> what you're saying to me is that God does not exist, but then you're openly admitting that you only know 5% of all there is to know. So if you say that you know only 5% of all there is to know and you don't know 95% of all there is to know, maybe what you're really saying is God does not exist in the realm of my knowledge, but he might exist outside of the realm of my knowledge. And if you admit that, you're not an atheist, you're at best an agnostic. Because an atheist says, I know that God does not exist and I'm absolutely certain of that. An agnostic says he may exist. Now, if you're an agnostic, I wanna ask you two questions. Number one, if you only had two choices, all you have is two choices. Choice number one, as an agnostic, is God may or may not exist. I die, and uh, there's nothing beyond that. It's, that's it. It's, there's no beyond, there's no divine. I die, and that's it. I go into the grave. Choice number two is that there is a loving God that cares for me. I don't understand why all this evil is in the world fully, but there's some kind of controversy between good and evil. And after I die... There's a glorious resurrection and one day evil be done away with. I'm not asking you to believe in God. I'm not asking you to believe in the Bible. All I'm saying is, if you only have one or two choices, one is God does not exist. I die, that's it. Or secondly, God does exist. He is with me. He's, he's near me. He's guiding me. He was, he's got his arms around me. If you only have two choices, my question is, if one of those choices were true, which would you accept? Which would you accept? They said, well, obviously, we would want to live forever. We'd want an eternal life. Then you're not even an agnostic. You're a seeker. And what's happened is you've been programmed. You've been programmed with 5% of knowledge. And you don't have 95%. And that's why I came. And so we talked about faith. We talked about God. Here's my point. In 48 hours, an entire nation changed. The idea that the work of God to be finished may take years and years and years and years is neither historically accurate or biblically accurate. Amen. God overnight can give opportunities for a generation of Adventists to be on the front page of every single paper. But if we have any idea that we're going to take glory to ourselves, God through his angels in Revelation 7 holds back the winds of strife because we are not ready. It's not that God is not ready to pour out his spirit and open the world. It is that we are not ready to receive it. It is not that God is not prepared to come. It is that we are not prepared for his coming. The promises of God are sure. Revelation chapter 18, the work of God on earth will be finished. There will be a generation who receive the Holy Spirit and who have only one passion, and that's to share Jesus' love and one desire, and that is to give him glory. The three angels' message does not say, fear God and give glory to me. 
It says, fear God and give glory to him. God is looking for a people who in the very fabric of their being and in the very tissues of their body and the very brain cells of their mind give glory to him. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. And these things, after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great what? Power or authority. The earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily. So the earth illuminated with the glory of God. This is the latter rain. This is the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. What promises that we can cling? God's work is not going to flicker like some little light on a candle and be blown out by the winds of darkness, the winds of secularism, the winds of materialism, the winds of hedonism and desire for pleasure. God's work is going to grow and like a flame will illuminate this world with his glory. The Bible says the earth was filled with what? The glory of God. You remember what Habakkuk says? As waters cover the sea, so God's knowledge will cover this earth from one end of the earth to the other. You and I can be part of a generation that cooperate with God to finish his work. His Holy Spirit can be poured out through us. We can see marvelous things happen for God here is a wonderful promise that Ellen White gives us in the book, Great Controversy, page 611 and 612. The work on earth will be similar to that of the day of Pentecost. As the former rain was given in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the opening of the gospel to, clothe, to cause the upspringing of the precious seed, so the latter rain will be given at its close for the ripening of the harvest. Let's pause there. The Bible talks about the outpouring of the Spirit in the form of rain, early and latter rain. We get that expression from the book of James, James chapter 5, and so it'll be important to define a little bit the early and the latter rain, James chapter 5. And we look there at James 5 and verse 7. Therefore be patient, James 5 verse 7, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. In other words, don't give up your faith. Some people say Adventists have preached the coming of Jesus since 1844, and it's 2010. Who's my math major? How many years is that? Well, 166, about that, right? 66, 76, in that area. Okay, they preached the Adventist message since 1844. Jesus has not come. The Bible says, be patient, brethren. You know what my answer to all those critics are? Well, what do you think? We're further away or coming or closer? We've been preaching for 176 years. We're no further away. We're closer, right? So that means I've got to preach more fervently, not less fervently. Verse 7, therefore be patient, brethren, till the coming of the Lord. Be patient, there will be a delay. Be patient, time will go on. Be patient, years will pass. See how the farmer does what? Waits for the precious fruit of the earth. There will be a great harvest. Waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. So, early and latter rain. The early rain and the latter rain are terms that the Bible uses for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Those terms can be applied historically and they can be applied experientially. 
from the standpoint of history, you go back to the book of Joel, chapter 2, and let's look at the early and latter reign from the standpoint of history, then let's look at it in our personal lives. Joel chapter 2, Joel chapter 2. Here is a prediction for the last days. Joel chapter 2, verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward. Some translations translate afterward a little differently. I think King James translates a little differently. What does King James say for Joel 2, verse 28? It shall come to pass when? Afterward still. Okay, New King James does as well. It shall come to pass afterward that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Another word for prophesy there is proclamation. They'll preach. Your sons and daughters will preach. It's more in the idea of a preaching. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my manservants and on my maidservants, I'll pour up my spirit in those days. King James says in those days. What does it say? In those days. Okay. Now notice. Here is a prediction in the book of Joel that the Holy Spirit will be poured out powerfully. When you come to Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes this prophecy and says that this reign of the Spirit has been fulfilled on Pentecost. And we find it when Peter is giving his sermon after the Holy Spirit is poured out on Pentecost, Peter says, Joel, Acts chapter 2, verse 17, verse 16 and 17. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, some people are concerned about that. Why does he say the last days there when he's identifying the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy to Pentecost in the first century. Well, it's very simple. Let's suppose, all right, here's the way it is. New Year's Day started at 12 o'clock, right? I mean, as far as the world is concerned, I'm not worried about sunset to sundown now, but okay. Midnight last night, New Year's Day started, right? Okay. Now, if you go to 12 o'clock noon today, that's covered 12 hours, right? If you go to 6 o'clock tonight, that's covered 18 hours, right? And then you go to 12 o'clock and it covered 24 hours, okay? So by 6 o'clock tonight, two-thirds of the day is finished, right? And you only got a third left, and you'd say it's the last moments of the day. When Peter's referring to this, he says, last days, he used that expression. Well, 4,000 years of history has gone by. And he's saying, Christ has come. Now we are living in a period of time where in these last days, this period of time now, the Holy Spirit has been poured out in the early rain. He's not talking about the latter rain. He's talking about the early rain historically. And so if you look for the panorama of human history, 4,000 years had passed. This is the, this, in, in this last moment of time right now that I'm living in, in these last days, not last days in the standpoint of final time just before the end, but in these last days, these last moments that, that, that you're seeing right now, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out in the early rain. The early rain 
of the Spirit came from the holy place of the sanctuary in the days of Peter. It came after the disappointment of Calvary. It came after the disciples were seeking God in prayer. So, early reign, you have a pattern. You have prophecies on the first coming of Christ that the disciples misunderstood. You have the disciples thinking Jesus was going to establish his kingdom. You have the crucifixion and the disappointment. You have the disciples looking to the sanctuary. You have the outpouring of the Spirit in the early reign and 3,000 baptized. Are you with me? Time goes on for 2,000 years. Now, just as the early reign launched the Christian movement, the latter reign will finish it. So, in agriculture, the early rain comes as the seed has been planted to germinate the seed. The latter rain comes to complete the harvest. Jesus sowed the seed for three and a half years. The early rain fell of the Spirit on Pentecost. The seed that Jesus sowed germinated. And the Christian church was launched. In the latter days of earth's history, the Bible studies have been given. The literature has been passed out. Our radio programs have, been, have gone forth. We've sowed seeds, sowed seeds, sowed seed now. Some of the seed you sow is not going to look like it has much result at all. But when that latter rain of the Spirit falls, those seeds that you planted in the minds of, of people are going to blossom, and there are going to be thousands and thousands coming to Christ, and you'll meet people in heaven that you've never known were there, and they're going to say, you were in St. Louis, and you knocked on a door. You were in Louisville. You knocked on a door. You were in Chattanooga. You knocked on a door. You were in Orlando. You gave out that literature. You gave me that book. You gave me that Bible study, and I read it, and those seeds were in my mind, and the Holy Spirit was poured out, and it brought all that truth to forefront. You gave me that tape. You gave me, you preached that evangelistic sermon. Take courage, because the seeds we plant today, when Jesus died on Calvary, he could have thought his ministry was a failure. How many converts around Calvary? Were they there by the thousands kneeling, worshiping him as he was crucified? Were they there? What happened? The disciples forsook him and fled. Judas betrayed him. Peter did what? Denied him. The Jews and their high priests rejected him. But when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, the seeds that Jesus sowed in his life came to fruition. And because of Jesus' ministry, 3,000 were baptized in one day. That was the early rain. Now let me read to you something wonderfully. Take your Bible and turn again. Now, to the book of Joel. And we're looking here. Second chapter of Joel. Second chapter of the book of Joel. You want to see something encouraging. This is it. Joel chapter 2. And we're looking there at Joel 2. Let me get my exact text here. Joel 2. He says, Looking for the passage of Scripture, the Lord moved it on me. He says, I've given you the former rain moderately. Which verse? 
23, thank you very much. Yeah, here we go. We're looking at Joel 2, verse 23. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain, what? Faithfully, or some say moderately. And he will cause the rain to come down for you. I think King James says moderately, doesn't it? He gives you the former rain moderately. But he'll give you the latter rain in the first month. Now look, if the early rain was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, and if 3,000 were baptized in one day at one place, and that was moderate, I can't wait to see the latter rain. Are you with me? He gave the former or early rain what? Moderately. And 3,000 were baptized in one time in one place. If 3,000 in one day in one place is moderate, I can't wait to see what God is going to do in the latter rain. That leads me, though, to this question. If the coming of Jesus is delayed because the gospel hasn't yet been preached to the world, and if Jesus has such a loving heart, he wants to give every person the chance to be saved, and if that which has hindered the preaching of the gospel to the world is the inability to receive the latter rain, then that leads us to a question. We cannot finish the work, only he can. But if he chooses to use human instruments through whom he pours out his Holy Spirit in latter rain, then my next question is what? How can we see we receive the latter rain? See, what is holding up? You know, I, I get troubled sometimes. Have you ever listened to a video? Nah, I got to be careful here. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> I get really concerned about people who try to say, look, the economy of the world is about ready to go down over the next year and a half, so sell everything you can and, uh, you know, and uh, Jesus is going to come tomorrow kind of a thing. Jesus is not waiting for the economy to collapse. The, the angels are holding back the winds of strife. The issue today is not some time chart. It's not the reapplication of time prophecies of the book of Daniel and try to take the 1290 and 1335 and put them in some time chart. The issue is not time, and the issue is not the economy. The issue is the hearts of God's people. What God is waiting for is not another financial collapse and not some time chart that you figure out. And some people are figuring out all the different popes, and they're saying, you know, there are seven popes here, and you know what I'm talking about. We are missing the boat. We are fighting where the battle is not. That's not what's delaying the coming of Jesus. If you understand what we are studying from the Bible and the spirit of prophecy today, it's going to save you from a thousand heresies. The devil does not care if you're conservative as long as he gets you off the track. You can be studying the popes from now to eternity rather than studying Jesus and the sanctuary and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I'd rather study Jesus, the sanctuary, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit than be studying the seven popes or the ten popes or whatever it is. The issue is not time. The issue is, what do you think God is waiting here saying, all right now, all right now, if just enough time goes by and there's another economic collapse, I think I can come. 
Get your head on straight. What he's longing for is a people that are committed to him, a people that receive his spirit that he can pour it out. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, the devil reacts against that, and events take place in society. Will there be an economic collapse? Sure. Will there be wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters? Sure. But that's not where our focus is. Our focus is on preparing our hearts personally to allow Jesus Christ to be enthroned in our hearts and leading others to do the same thing so we can be filled with the Spirit and go out and preach His gospel to the world. Let the popers pope. <laughs> and let the people that are looking at the economy economize. And let those people that are looking at coming events and are doomsday prophets doomsday it. But for me, in my house, we're going to look at Jesus. Amen. We're going to fill our hearts with his spirit and go out and share the gospel to the, with the world and get everybody we can seeking God in prayer and opening our hearts to God. Because the issue, the issue that's delaying the coming of Jesus is not events in the world, it's events in the church. It's what's happening in our hearts. And so the question that becomes, has God outlined in the Bible how we can open our hearts to receive his Holy Spirit. And he has. He's given us about five specific things. If you study scripture, we're going to look at the first in Zechariah chapter 10, verse 4. Now, we have said, as we turn to this text, incidentally, we've said that you can look at the, Holy, the early and latter reign in two ways. And I've given you one historically. Historically, the early rain is poured out, was poured out on Pentecost, 3,000 were baptized, and historically, the latter rain will be poured out just before the close of this earth's history, and Jesus will come. That's historically. But you can also look at the early and latter rain personally in your own life. Personally, the early rain stirs your heart up. Personally, the early rain, the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. Personally, the early rain leads you to truth. Personally, the early rain works to lead you to be a totally committed person to God. The latter rain is the infilling of the Spirit on converted Christians to empower them to take the gospel to the world. So the latter rain is the empowering and the latter rain will never come to empower when there is cherished, known, willing sin in the heart. Certainly we stumble. Certainly the latter rain helps to give us victory. But when there is cherished rebellion in the heart and known sin, God cannot pour out the power of the latter rain to accomplish its function of the gospel going to the world. So we want to ask ourselves the question, how is it that we can receive ever-increasing amounts of the Spirit from God to be the kind of people that he wants us to be and participate in the latter rain? Zechariah 10, verse 4. Point one, ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. Is this the time of the latter rain? It is. Ellen White says the time that we're living is the time of the latter rain. This is the time of the latter rain. Don't look at it for some future time. Some people say, let's look forward to the future. This is the time right now. It says, ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. 
So ask the Lord for rain. Jeremiah 5, verse 24. Jeremiah 5, verse 24. He is the one that gives the rain. Jeremiah 5, verse 24. God's people are not going to be saying, let's now fear the Lord our God who gives rain. We're going to be praising it. We want the latter rain to come. Jeremiah 5, verse 24, who gives both the former and the latter in its season. The former comes at the beginning of the Christian dispensation. The former came at Pentecost. This is now the season of the latter rain. It's the end time. Verse 24, last part. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. So we, he has reserved the harvest for us. This is the generation that's to be the harvest generation to see the final harvest of earth reaped as he pours out his spirit in latter rain power. What does he say? Ask the Lord for rain. I love the way Ellen White puts it. Let me give you a number of quotes from the book, Coming of the Comforter, but these are quotes from the Gift of Prophecy, Ellen White, that Leroy Froome brings together in his book, The Coming of the Comforter. It's a convenient place for me to give you about four or five quotes on how to receive the latter rain, and I'll give you the Spirit of Prophecy references. Here is 8th volume of the Testimonies, page 23. 8th volume of Testimonies, page 23. My brethren and sisters, plead for the Holy Spirit. Do what? Plead, plead for the Holy Spirit. God stands back of every promise he's made. Can somebody say amen? amen. God does what? Stand. Stands back of every promise he's made. Now, notice this. With your Bibles in your hands. I love this. Ellen White says, plead for the Holy Spirit. She says, with your Bibles in your hand, say, I have done as thou hast said. I present thy promise. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. So how can we receive the latter rain? Personally on our knees asking God and saying, God, you stand behind every promise. It's impossible for you to lie. With my Bible in my hand, I come to you, and I claim the gift of the Holy Spirit in its fullness and abundance for my life. Next, Testimonies to Ministers, page 170. Oh, how we need the divine presence. For the baptism of the Holy Spirit, every worker should be breathing out his prayer to God. So again, emphasis on before God, calling out in prayer. That's Testimonies to Ministers, page 170. I think of one of my favorite statements on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, pleading for it, is 8th volume of the Testimonies, page 22. 8th volume of the Testimonies, page 22. Why do we not hunger and thirst for the gift of the Spirit? Since this is the means by which we are to receive power, why do we not talk of it, pray for it, preach concerning it? The Lord is more willing to give the Holy Spirit to us than the parents are to give good gifts to their children. For the baptism of the Spirit, every worker should be pleading with God. Amen. Now, here is emphasis on the reception of the Holy Spirit. What if in your local church, 
On a Wednesday night, there were groups of three, four, or five meeting together to plead with God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What if every Sabbath morning there were groups there? What if you had a group coming to your home once a week, a prayer group? If you are not involved in a prayer group at your school, I'm going to urge you to do that. If you're not involved in a prayer group in your uh, secular university, I'm going to urge you to do that, your Adventist university. If you in your local church are not involved in a prayer group, praying individually and praying collectively, praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, praying that God will show us in our own lives things that are not in harmony with his will, praying for the salvation of others and pleading with God for that son, that daughter, that husband, that wife that doesn't know Christ. The ministry of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the latter rain only will come in answer to prayer. So the Bible and the writings of Ellen White give you about five criteria for receiving the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The first is asking. Now, the second is what I call an undivided heart. And I need to spend a little time explaining this, an undivided heart. If you have the idea in your own mind that God will not pour out his spirit upon you until you achieve some kind of uh, super perfectionism, you'll end up frustrated and defeated in your Christian life. When you come to Jesus, rejoice that your sins are forgiven. When you come to Jesus, Romans 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. I am not everything I want to be, but I'm not the man I used to be. I'm not everything that I long to be, you can say, but I'm not the woman that I used to be. In Christ, you're forgiven. Rejoice in your forgiveness. In Christ, through his grace, you are saved. Rejoice in the eternal life that he has given you. You will see imperfections in your life. As you see those imperfections and the Holy Spirit points them out, give them to him. That is a lifelong process. We will never come to the place in our spiritual life where we can say we've achieved. It is in that context that we say, Lord, I long to receive the outpouring of your Holy Spirit for the finishing of your work. Grant to me an undivided heart. Now, I'd like to show you an interesting thing in Jesus' baptism. Take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 3. We're studying how to receive the Holy Spirit in latter rain power for the finishing of God's work. We've looked at the promises both in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy about asking. Now we're looking for the concept of an undivided heart. An undivided heart is not a heart where it is an undivided heart is not a life where there is no failure because we as weak human beings fail but an undivided heart is a heart that we ask God for a pure heart where we have one desire and that's to please him in Luke the third chapter in the 21st and 22nd verse you're going to notice the baptism of Jesus Luke chapter 3 verse 21 and 22 Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. This is the undivided heart concept. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. 
Now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, heaven was open. This is Luke 23, verse 21-22. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So when Jesus was baptized, the voice came from heaven. What did it say? You are my beloved Son, in whom I am what? Well pleased. Why was the Father pleased with the Son? John 8, verse 29. Notice the linkage. The Holy Spirit was poured out on Jesus when the Father said to Jesus, You are my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Why could the Father pour out the Spirit on the Son, and why did the Son please the Father? Why, did, why was the Father pleased with the Son? Now look, John 8, verse 29. John 8, verse 29. What does Jesus say? And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone. Why not? Because I always do those things that what? Please him. Jesus had what kind of a heart? An undivided heart. Jesus' passion of his life was to please the Father. And because Jesus made a commitment in his life to please the Father, the Father was pleased with him and the Father gave Jesus his Holy, the Holy Spirit at baptism in the fullness of anointing. If you look at Acts 10, it says that at the baptism of Christ, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 10. And we're looking at Acts 10. Let your eyes drop down in Acts the 10th chapter to the 38th verse. This is describing Jesus' baptism in the 37th verse. And it says, How God anointed, verse 38, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. Was Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit, was he? When was he anointed? At his baptism. And with power. So when you're anointed with the Holy Spirit, you're anointed with what? Power. Who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed. Jesus began his three and a half year ministry. In his three-and-a-half-year ministry, now, was Jesus conceived of the Holy Spirit? Was Jesus guided by the Holy Spirit as a child? Was Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit to face the temptations of Satan for the first 30 years of his life? What happened when he was 30? There was a divide in his life, and he was beginning his ministry. So if you can classify it in early and latter rain terms, the early rain flowed through Jesus' life for the first 30 years. He received personally an anointing of the Holy Spirit with power, which would be the latter reign in his life for the last three and a half years to accomplish his ministry. Without that anointing of the Holy Spirit, he could not have accomplished his ministry as powerfully as he did. So in our lives, as we ask God for the Holy Spirit, what was it? Zechariah chapter 10, verse what? One, ask the Lord for rain. As we ask the Lord for the Holy Spirit, as with Jesus, we say, Father, I don't want to do anything in my life that will be displeasing to you. I want an undivided heart. He empowers us for ministry as youth in the final generation to finish his work on earth. The Holy Spirit, the latter rain power is poured out on us individually as God empowers the church. This is the time to claim it. Do you know that in Scotland, there are 40, bankers tell us in Scotland, any bankers here? Ah, oh, there's a banker back there. I knew we had at least one banker here. 
Welcome, banker. Glad you're here. <laughs> 40 million pounds. You know, the pound is English Scottish currency. 40 million pounds of unclaimed deposits in Scottish banks. Man, I could use that as an offering for GYC, ASI, or other. 40 million pounds. Unclaimed deposits. You know, a pound is, I don't know what it is now, probably 150, 160, 140, but let's just say 150, it's easy to figure. $60 million around. Unclaimed deposits. They're there in Scottish banks. Either people died or they left them and nobody claimed the will. 40 million pounds, $60 million. Could it be that the Holy Spirit latter rain power is unclaimed by us? Could it be that we are trying to finish the work and that's unbiblical? Because the Bible never once says, go out and finish the work. The Bible says, he will do what? Finish the work. So he finishes the work with consecrated people whose hearts are open to receive his spirit so he gets all the glory. So he gets all the glory. Two things in receiving the Spirit. What are they? Number one, what? Ask. And number two is what? An undivided heart. Let me give you a practical illustration of undivided heart. A couple, young couple, in their late 20s, attended a seminar like this on the Holy Spirit. And I want to apply this very practically, this undivided heart principle. When they attended, they were twelve dollars to $14,000 in debt on their credit cards. And their debt was shackling them. They were arguing. They seemed to be going in further and further and further in debt every single month. They didn't know how to handle their debt. And one of the reasons they had this debt is because they did not have an undivided heart. The things of this world were capturing them. If they wanted to go on a vacation where they had the money or not, they just took out their credit card, their visa, their master, they went. If they wanted new clothes, they bought them. They had unrestrained buying, and they had only been married like a year and a half, two years, and they were already $14,000 in credit card debt. They came to the seminar. We talked about an undivided heart. We talked about John chapter 8, verse 29. I do always those things that please him. We said, how do you tell if you have an undivided heart? In every major decision of your life, get on your knees and say, Jesus, is this pleasing to you? Just like Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, not my will, but thy will be done. The undivided heart principle is that Jesus saw the cross. He did not want to go to the cross. Jesus didn't go to the cross saying, praise the Lord, hallelujah. They're going to put a crown of thorns on my head and nails through my hands. Just praise the Lord. You know, Jesus sensed the physical, mental, and psychological agony of the cross was going to rip him apart. Jesus sensed that to bear the cup of guilt for the human race, that he, the cross was no picnic. As David preached last night, you know, it was a scandal. So to, 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 to go to the cross. So Jesus got on the, his knees. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup of guilt, this cup of pain, this cup of suffering, this cup of condemnation, let it pass. But not my will, but thy will be done. The undivided heart principle is saying, Lord, all I want to know is what your will is, and I'm going to do it. Amen. The reception of the latter rain will come on a group of, of youth who want to do God's will more than they want to do their own will, Amen. who long to please Jesus in every area of their life. And so this young couple came to a Holy Spirit seminar. They said, we are going to ask Jesus. We're going to ask Jesus for permission before we make any major decisions. We want to follow the Lord, does this please you principle. We want to follow Lord, is this your will principle. And so they began to do that. 
One day they were walking in a mall and they came across, they love skiing, and they came across a shop that was selling skiing equipment for 50 to 70% off. And she looked at him and he looked at her and said, praise the Lord, this must be providential. <laughs> We've wanted new skiing equipment and there's a sale. I mean, what woman sees a sale and doesn't think it's providential? <laughs> Every man said, amen. Every woman said, I'm going to throw rotten tomatoes at that lousy preacher. Anyway, so they saw the, the shop and they said, our skis are old. Think of the discount. And they went in and they got equipped. They spent about two hours. They got equipped with new skis, both of them, new ski boots, both of them, new ski outfits, both of them. And it, and it was a great buy because they originally, this stuff originally was going to be about 7000 They could buy the whole thing for 3500 half price. And they were only now going to go 15500 in debt. You know, they weren't going to go. And so they came up to the cash register. They had been fitted for their stuff. And uh, they came up to the cash register and he took out his visa and he gave it. You know, they have those, those little things you, you, you put them through like this. You know, those, they're little machines, you know, with those kind of machines. And he goes, and they say, you have to push a little thing that says, okay, $3,567.23. And he has to touch the okay like that. Well, as the guy put in the credit card and he's got this thing, he looked at his wife and she looked at him. And they both had these strange looks on their face. And he never dotted the okay. He never let the person, you know, run the credit card. He said, you know what? I need to talk to my wife a little bit before I sign this. And they took hand in hand and they went out in the mall. And as they sat there, they said, you know, we attended the Holy Spirit seminar and we made a commitment, a very practical commitment that we want to have an undivided heart. We made a practical commitment that what we wanted to do in our lives is do God's will. And if it's God's will for us to buy this, and I'm not suggesting to any of you, if you're about ready to buy skis, you shouldn't do it. Maybe it's the very thing you ought to do. I don't know. But I know this. For this couple, it was not God's will for them to go $15,500 in debt. The issue is not whether you buy the skis or not. The issue is, are you going to go so far in debt that it's going to kill you? See, the issue is, have you prayed that you want to do God's will? That's what the issue is. Maybe you've been intense in your work and you need to go out on the ski slopes. Great, go do it and relax and have a great time and come back more refreshed to, to serve God. That's not my point at all. And I don't want some conscientious person to think that I'm against skiing because I'm not. You've got to relax in life because you come back more powerful for God. But here is the point. This couple had never prayed about it. They were superimposing their will against God's will. And they were going to go much further in debt that would have made. And you know what they did? They sat out there, they prayed, and they came to the conclusion, God does not want us to do this. Amen. They said later, it was the first time in their life that they could remember that they gave up something that they really, really, really wanted because they were deeply convicted that the thing that they wanted wasn't God's will. May I ask you a question? When was the last time that you really, really wanted something. The last time that you really desired it, that you could have had it. Now there's no test if you want it and you can't have it anyway and you give it up. <laughs> Are you with me? There's no test if you want it and you couldn't have it anyway and you give it up. Conversion comes at a test. Conversion comes at a test. If you have been brought up 
to be a vegan vegetarian and drink soy milk all your life, diet in that area is not your test. But if you've been brought up on juicy beefsteaks that you love and you crave, and you give them up for, the, for Jesus' sake, that's a test, right? Amen. Now, you vegans, you're going to have another test. Don't worry, God's got one for you. <laughs> Don't worry about that. The reception of the Holy Spirit comes. When I come to a point of a test, and the Spirit convicts me to do something, and I give up the thing I want for Jesus because I know it's contrary to His will, and He fills me with something better, His Holy Spirit, and in my heart I have a deeper joy and a love and a peace. And that couple said, we could have danced down the rest of the way of the mall because we made a decision to do God's will, and we felt joy and peace and power in our life. If you want joy and peace and power in your life, when you come to a crossroads, when your will and God's will are in conflict, and you could have the thing, when you could have that guy. You know what I'm talking about. But he's not a committed Christian. But you could have him. You could have him. But you say, Lord, no. Because I know where it is going to lead five years from now, ten years from now. I am not going to be on the, on the wreck heap of people they think they could have converted him. You'll hear testimonies, I married him, he wasn't a Christian, he was converted. For every ten of those stories, and I praise God for godly women that convert their husbands. And I praise God for godly women who have husbands that are unconverted, that stay with them. And there's a whole holy influence in that family. That's another story. I'm talking to young people, most of whom are not hitched yet. <laughs> Let the Holy Spirit give you God's best. Amen. Let the Holy Spirit give you God's best. How do you receive the Holy Spirit? Two steps. What are they? First, so far. Ask God. Plead with God. We read those spirit of prophecy statements. We read the Bible. Secondly, tell God that you want a what? Undivided heart. Thirdly, here's the third. Saturate your mind with God's Word. Saturate your mind with with God's Word. John 6, verse 63. John 6, verse 63. Saturate your mind with God's Word. Here we go. How's my timekeeper? How am I doing, timekeeper? It's time to start Oh, I got to give you a break. Whew. Man, those preachers, they go on. You can't even stop them. I was just getting warmed up in this class. Okay, we're going to have to give you a break. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org